I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at microsoft.com slash AI for all. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back, fight fans, to season two, episode number nine of the darker side of boxing. We're reaching the end goal of the season, only one more episode left to go, guys. But this, in the penultimate episode, this is an absolute brilliant tale, a tale that I genuinely didn't think would turn out to be what it is. And it's all about the man, the myth, the legend that is Stanley Ketchell. Now, this is going to feel like you've stepped into a world of westerns. You've stepped into a world of Red Dead Redemption. If anybody's played that game, this is what Stanley Ketchell's life was like. This is what the environment was like when he was around in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And of course, there's a lot of drama that surrounded his life. There's loads of myths, there's loads of tales, there's loads of stories in this episode and it's going to be a long one and I really hope that you guys enjoy listening to this one. Now our perception of Stanley really comes from other fighters that we've covered like Jack Johnson and Sam Langford in particular. You know, we've covered these guys' career profiles. So our perception of Stanley Ketchel comes from that and of what we already knew about him. But this just blows everything we knew out of the water. Oh, mate, it does. Um, honestly, buckle in. Uh, get your headphones in. Give yourself a spare cut of two hours, whatever. Just just take yourself away from the family. Um, if you listen to this at Christmas, a Merry Christmas. Um, enjoy it because, uh, as Sean said, it, it does literally, at the end of this, if, if you're a bit of a gamer like myself and like Sean, then I'm sure you'll probably be jumping on Red Dead Redemption after this because, it's, seriously, it takes you way, way back. This is the wild, wild west. Uh, Stanley Ketcher was a bit of a Jack the Lad and, and a magnificent middleweight. And, you know, you got to think from 1900s all the way up to sort of 1950, Stanley Ketchel was probably considered the best middleweight that ever lived. And still today, he will always sit in someone's top five to top ten quite easily. And we'll, we'll go into all the boxing side of things. 
as well as all the stuff outside of the ring. And we'll try and paint this beautiful picture of the Wild West to you as well. So enjoy. Well, it all begins with Stanley's father, Thomas Kikal, as he was born in Germany in September of 1867. He was a Russian immigrant of Polish descent. And while in his teens, it was rumoured that he arrived in New York from London after fleeing Russia. He began working as a furniture polisher before moving on to Pittsburgh and Cleveland and then eventually arriving in the western Michigan from Chicago. He made acquaintances with a Polish-American man called Frederick Oblinski and was introduced to his wife and 14-year-old daughter, Julia. Back in these days, it was common for families to agree to actually wed off their daughters very early on in their lives. So Thomas and Julia were married very quickly. Julia was still at the age of 14 when she gave birth to Stanislaw Kikal, a.k.a. Stanley Ketchell, on September the 14th, 1886, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Now, there is very limited information on how Stanley was brought up from the moment he was born to the age 11. But what we do know is that he avoided school and joined a gang of street kids, often getting into fistfights. Stanley said he learned to fight when he was the leader of the West Sides, and by his own admission, he said, I was a tough kid who needed walloping and got it often from his father. Now, according to the 1900 census, on June the 6th, Stanley Ketcher lived at 177 Stocking Street in Grand Rapids, Michigan, with his father Thomas, his mother Julia, and his three brothers. All four sons were born in Michigan. Stanley was 13 at this time, John was 10, Alexander was 8, and Leonard was 6, and their parents had been married for 13 years. Thomas was 32 at the time, and Julia 27. Now also living with the family was a 27-year-old Armenian resident named Kapop Arazuman, who was employed as a cabinet maker. Well, as you mentioned, there weren't much from birth, but Ketchell did run away from home at the age of 12, and he actually began or became a uh, child hobo, travelling the freight trains. It was a biographer who wrote he worshipped the James brothers and would rather have been a great train robber than middleweight champion of the world. He was fascinated with the tales of the James gang and slingers of the Colt and Winchester. So he departed home early to ride the rails in search of what was left of the old West. Now, while riding the rails, looking for jobs, living where he found employment, he stopped off in Chicago and Stanley recalled that a saloon keeper named Soccer Flanagan saw him batter a challenger twice his size and decided to give him a job. It was Flanagan, according to Ketchell, who taught him to wear boxing gloves and who gave him his name that we all know him as, as Ketchell, Stanley Ketchell. Now, from Chicago, his journey continued. And in John Lardner's article, Down Great Purple Valleys, written 1954, which, by the way, is a fantastic read. And he's a great he, he writes some fantastic articles but he explained what he did next and this is what he said the polish boy moved west he worked as a field hand in north dakota he went over the canadian line to winnipeg and from there he described a great westerning arc 
through mining camps, sawmills and machine shops, riding the rods of the Canadian National and the Canadian Pacific through rugged North Country settlements in Revelstock, Kamloops and Arrowhead in British Columbia till we fetched up on the west coast of Victoria. He had a .22 rifle and he used to recall that he carried like a hunter as he walked the roads. In Victoria, he sold that .22 for boat fare down across the straits of Puget Sound to Seattle. In Seattle, he jumped a North Pacific freight to Montana. A row dick threw him off the train in Silverbow and he walked the remaining few miles of cinders to Butte. His first job was as a hotel bellhop and by boxing writer Nat Fleischer's account, Stan's entrance into boxing came with a chance running that he had while working as a bellhop at the sleazy joint in Butte called the Copper Queen. On this occasion, a bouncer known for his rough brand of humour tripped Stanley up, sending him into a trolley full of trays and dishes which went flying. An enraged Ketchell was not going to get mugged off, so he taught the geezer a lesson and bashed him up. That beating put him in favour of the owner, Josh Allen, who fired the bully and hired Stanley in his place. One night he was spotted sorting out a troublesome customer when he caught the eye of Sid Lamont, a local lightweight of some reputation. Sid was so impressed that he taught him a few basics and introduced him to Maurice Thompson, a more seasoned fighter who turned workouts into fights. By 1903, the City Grand Rapids directory had Stanley Ketchell listed as living at 87 Stocking Street and being employed as a machinist at a brush factory. Stanley must have rekindled his relationship with his father Thomas because he was also listed at the same address and employed as a sander, still working in the furniture trade. Supposedly, one of Stanley Ketchell's fellow employees at the brush factory was Al Kubiak, who would become a heavyweight championship contender during the time of Ketchell's middleweight reign. Kubiak and Ketchell used to pass their break time by sparring with each other. Reports suggest that 16-year-old Stanley relocated from Grand Rapids, Michigan to Butte, Montana in the same year and soon started boxing in backroom matches with older locals for $20 a week. So his first public appearance as a fighter was reported in a cheap rundown bar called The Big Casino and he began travelling throughout Montana, offering to take on any man brave enough to face him. The local champion, Kid Tracy, offered Stanley the chance to see if he could last the distance with him on May 2nd, 1903. In the book Hitters, Dancers and Ring Magicians by Kelly Richard Nicholson, he wrote about this fight and he said, It was alleged to be a dirty affair, wherein Jack had an accomplice behind the curtain who would administer, if needed, a whack on the head to, to a man once Tracy had him in position. While as on the game, Stanley managed not only to give Jack a whipping, but he put him on the receiving end of his own trick for good measure. Some say that Ketchell won a special $50 prize, but others say it was just $10. But what we do know is that the fight was recorded as his first professional boxing match. To give a little background to Butte, Montana... It was in the 1890s that there was an influx of miners that gave Butte a reputation as a wide open town where any corruption was obtainable. 
The city saloon and red light district was called the line and the copper block respectively and was centered on Mercury Street where the elegant brothels included the famous Dumas brothel. Not long after Stanley Ketchell arrived in town, the 26th president of the United States, Teddy Roosevelt, recalled his visit to Butte on May 1903 in a letter to his Secretary of State, John Hay. And he described the town. He said, in Butte, every prominent man is a millionaire, a gambler or a labour leader, and generally has been all free. Of the hundred men who were my hosts, I suppose at least half had killed their man in private war and had striven to compass the assassination of an enemy. Well, he continued to write and he said they had been allies and enemies in every kind of business scheme and companions in brutal revelry. As they drank great goblets of wine, the sweat glistened on their hard, strong, crafty faces. They had made money in mines, had spent it on the races, in other mines or in gambling and every form of vicious luxury. But they were strong men for all that. They had worked and striven and pushed and trampled and had always been ready and were ready now to fight to the death in many kinds of conflicts. They had built up their part of the West. They were men with whom one had to reckon if thrown in contact with them. But though most of them hated each other, they were accustomed to take their pleasure when they could get it and they took it fast and hard with the meats and the wines. Now, by Teddy Roosevelt's description, Stanley Ketchell had become one of those hard and fast men. According to a friend, he would be wild and untamed one second, lovable the next, treacherous at times, and most amicable on other occasions. His early Wild West days remained with him throughout his life, and he carried a revolver wherever he went. A sports writer acquaintance remembered, I never knew him to sit down to a meal in any big town without first laying his big blue six-shooter across his lap. Herbert Antony Alusus, a.k.a. Hype Igor, was a romantic journalist and probably the best-informed writer on boxing that ever lived, according to Damon Runyon, and was a confidant to Ketchell. And he said he carried a Colt 44, dramatically calling it Blue Gun, which was at his side when he slept in his lap uh, when he sat down to eat. So Stanley's character was explained in the Hitters, Dancers and Rig Magicians book by Kelly Richard Nicholson. And this is what he wrote. He said, Stanley was complex, capable in polar extremes of tenderness and ferocity. On social introductions, he was shy to the point of timidity. Once acquainted with a face, his transformation was electric. That Ketchell was madly superstitious. He might throw a fit if someone dropped a hat on his bed or opened an umbrella the wrong moment in his training camp. Entering the ring, he insisted upon a ritual handshake with his cornerman, always shaking last with his friend Pete the Goat Stone. So he was the guy at his corner. A picture of concentration when the chips were finally down. He was all but impossible to contain in the hours preceding. Away from the ring, he was the soul of generosity, an easy mark for any sad story that crossed his path. Yet it was said by some that he had the devil tearing at his insides. Now, Sid Lamont and Josh Allen continued to pass on their knowledge of boxing to Stanley as he began to embark on a professional boxing career. 
didn't get off to the brightest of starts when he lost his second professional fight to Maurice Thompson by decision over six rounds on May 11, 1904 at the Broadway Theatre in Bonte, Montana. The Anaconda Standard wrote this on his defeat. A right hand to Ketchell's jaw in the early going made him groggy. He has little or no science. In fact, he fought like a schoolboy and could get himself into the most awkward possible crouch when ready to punch. He got a good drumming, but he was game to the end. Now, although Stanley did lose this fight, he and but he did make a, a game show of of, of things uh, against Thompson, who was a, a reasonably good fighter. And you know, although he fouled him and beat him badly, the neighbourhood actually adored him for it, and he actually gained a bit of hero status, even though he had lost to Maurice Thompson at such a young age. It was probably his newfound reputation that encouraged West Coast photographer Joe O'Connor to become his first manager. O'Connor was new in town and had opened a studio in Butte, and it was there that he and Ketchell first met. Seven straight knockout victories led to a rematch between Ketchell and Thompson, but he lost another decision, this time over 10 rounds. One week later, Ketchell won by knockout, but then lost to Kid Lee on November 8, 1904. The Butte Minor newspaper wrote, that Ketchell claimed his third professional defeat and this was because he was blinded by smelling salts. He finished the year with five more fights, winning four, one was a no contest and his record then stood at 13 wins all by knockout and three defeats. The following year he won 16 of 17 fights by knockout and the one blemish was a 21 round draw against Rudolf Hinz. Stanley's only listing in the Butte City Directory was actually in 1905 and he was listed as Young Ketchell and his occupation was a prize fighter and he now rented a room at the Copper King where he was still employed as a bouncer. According to American sports writer John Lardner, the Copper King, which he referred to as the Copper Queen, was a hotel and place of amusement. At this point in his boxing career, Stanley still lacked the craft of boxing but what he did have was the equaliser to that. He had power in both hands. His right was devastating, but his left hook was equally as destructive. During his time fighting in the Bay Area, he was casually referred to as the Montana Whirlwind and the Montana Wonder, but neither name stuck, and he would eventually be given the nickname the Michigan Assassin, apparently given to him by Hype Igor. Now, although this name stuck for the best part of a century, most sports writers at the time called Ketchell the Michigan Lion. It's also worth noting that he was often referred to by his friends as Steve, another abbreviation of Stanislaw, of course, so they referred to him as Steve as opposed to Stanley. So by 1906, he continued his knockout streak with three more in six fights. The other two bouts were a draw against Montana Jack Sullivan, over 20 rounds and a no contest against Warren Zubrick. The reason was because Ketchell hit Zubrick low and he was uh, counted out. The, the Anaconda Standard wrote, a decision rendered by two judges who had been appointed to decide close decisions. If any arose during the bout, they decided that a no decision should be given, that all bets be declared off and that the purse should be equally divided between the men. Stanley Ketchell, fought for the last time in Montana on September 10, 1906, 
after a California newsman named R.A. Smith witnessed him batter an opponent in a Butte club. He urged him to seek out a place where he would gain more exposure, giving him a letter to make his introduction in Sacramento, California, which at the time was the mecca of boxing. Around sometime in 1907, after Ketchell had exhausted any worthwhile competition in the Montana area, he packed his satchel, hopped on a row and headed south in search of boxing's biggest names. Ketchell scored his first West Coast victory against Mike McClare in Redding, California on March 23rd, 1907, stopping him in seven rounds. After winning two fights in May, one was an impressive knockout of an African-American fighter named George K.O. Brown, who had already made a name for himself in California. Ketchell landed a devastating right hand, followed up by an uppercut in the third round, right bang on Brown's chin, sending him to the deck like a sack of shit. It was out cold for precisely, they say, 10 minutes. Ketchell hit the headlines after that stunning knockout and the local boxing promoter, Lou Trevor, held a conference saying it may be just as well that Bran got trimmed because this youngster that wowed him is a sure enough fighting fool, a slugging devil, if I've ever seen one. <laughs> well, you know, that's like a typical promoter, even back then, 1906, <laughs> and the promoters already can see the dollars, can't they, straight away. <laughs> now, Stanley had pocketed $500 for his win, and he purchased some new clothes and went to the dance with a young lady on his arm, where he unexpectedly bumped in to Bill Barton, a six-foot, 200-pounder, who was also known to be a bully boy. Then, according to Nat Fleischer... Barton tried it on with Stanley, but he got ironed out and Ketchell became the town hero. The next day, Ketchell was offered the chance to fight top welterweight and middleweight contender Joe Thomas for $1,000 win, lose or draw guaranteed. Trevor explained that the offer was to protect Stanley's purse because Thomas was one tough hombre. And Ketchell replied, so am I. I'd go winner takes all if Joe wanted. Trevor, well, he was intrigued by Stanley's confidence and he said, how old are you? And Ketchell responded, 21. Old enough to know I can lick any guy near my weight in the world. If you want to make some easy dough, have a bet on me. This Thomas Bird ain't any tougher than plenty of other bimbos I've sent to the cleaners. A champion was only one until some fellow comes along and belts him down. Now, Ketchell was back in the ring for the afternoon showdown against Joe Thomas on July the 4th, 1907, in Marysville, California, on a 20-rounder. And it was an absorbing battle that went the full distance, even after Ketchell had knocked Thomas through the ropes in the 11th, only to be saved by the bell. After 20 rounds, referee Eddie Smith declared it a draw. But it meant nothing, because Stanley Ketchell had just introduced himself into both the middleweight and welterweight divisions as a real threat. So veteran referee Billy Roach, matchmaker for James J. Kofroff's fight club in Colma, California. Um, and Kofroff, we'll men- we mentioned in uh, Jack Johnson's career as a promoter that, that sort of helped Jack Johnson at times. Well, he wired, uh, not Kofroff, but Billy Roach, wired Ketchell an offer of a rematch with Thomas to take place on Labor Day, September 2nd, 1907. Now, by the laws governing Colma, this could be a finish fight, meaning a duration in needed of 45 rounds. Jesus Christ. 
Uh, the offer from Roach was, I'll give you boys 50% of the house. Stanley didn't hesitate. Suits me, he said. And Thomas eventually accepted after some negotiations. Ketchell wasn't bothered about his split. He was a gambling man. So he put down all of his purse, all of his money that he had, that he earned from the fight, before the fight. And uh, when Roach suggested that maybe he keep some of that dough back just in case, he got a classic Ketchell reply. It's all or nothing with me, sport. I never hedged in my life for marbles or money. Anyway, I'm due to win, sure. There's no fighter around my weight that I can't lick inside 45 rounds. Into the fight and Ketchell took an early lead, dropping Thomas in the 16th round, but Thomas recovered and dropped Ketchell hard in the 27th. Somehow, Ketchell surprised those in attendance by getting up and putting Thomas down twice in the 32nd round. When it looked like Thomas was ready to go down for the third time, his chief second, Harry Foley, threw in the sponge, as they did back then. The referee, Billy Roach, later claimed, it was the greatest fight I ever saw, and there are not many of the big ones that I have not seen in modern ring history. Roach also will never forget the speed and power of Ketchell. After I had given the men their instructions, they went to their corners and the gong rang. Ketchell came out fast and hooked left to the body, missing with a wild right at the same time. The punch whizzed by my ear and I painfully felt the wind of it. The plan to move to the West Coast had paid off and the boxing experts were now singing Stanley Ketchell's praises after defeating one of the best in the division. On December the 12th, 1907, they met for a third time in San Francisco Seals Baseball Park amidst a night storm at one point. The wind actually tore apart a canvas that covered the ring and the water came down, splashing the fighters, the referee and the press row occupants. Now, Ketchell and Thomas were oblivious to anything going on the outside. All they wanted to do was get into each other. In the first round, Ketchell dropped Joe with a left to the head and by the end of the 12th, Ketchell was the stronger man. Thomas went down again in the 15th but somehow rallied to score a flash knockdown himself in the last round, with the crowd going wild at the bell. When it was over, the referee held up Ketchell's hand, who had now taken claim to the middleweight title. Now in December 1897, Kid McCoy, someone we covered for season one, he'd he'd vacated the middleweight title, so he could campaign as a heavyweight, and Tommy Ryan then laid claim to the recently vacated crown, and made his first defence, just three days after McCoy relinquished it, defeating Jack Bonner. Now, following Ryan's retirement in 1907, he was still considered the champion, and therefore that status was up for grabs, and the middleweight title was vacant once again. When Ketchell beat Thomas, many felt he was the legitimate holder, but several others disputed his claim. Among them was Jack Twin Sullivan, who held victories over Tommy Burns and Joe Thomas. When Ketchell issued a challenge to Jack, he was told that he should prove himself against his twin brother, Mike Twin Sullivan first, who had established himself as a prime welterweight contender. Ketchell was asked about the legitimacy of his crown by a columnist, and he said it reminded him of a book from which his mother had once read to him about the Civil War. In what was the tale of a man who urged all of his relatives onto the front lines while he stayed home, and pray for victory. Maybe, Ketchell said, Jack Sullivan figures things that way. He started the new year by flattening uh, Jack's brother, Mike, in just one round, 
and then he turned his attention to his brother Jack. And on May 9, 1908, 10 weeks after Stan knocked out Mike, he and Ketchell met in Colma, California. But this one went further than anticipated. Ketchell's attack was taking its toll, sending Jack down twice. But he claimed foul. The referee, again, Billy Roach, was not to be fooled and said to him on the second occasion, get up and fight like a man. Sullivan did his best, but by the 12th round, he was done. Body shots eventually ended the fight. After back-to-back victories over the Sullivan twins, Ketchell became the first person known to have knocked out twin brothers in consecutive title matches. And they say title is still only claiming to be the middleweight champion, or weltweight champion, weight champion, however you, whatever he was at this time. It, it's tricky because he fights for weltweights and middleweights. On June 4, 1908, Stanley Ketchell may have laid claim to that middleweight title, but his next fight would be for the real thing. There are only two challenges that remained, and that was Stanley Ketchell and a fighter who would become his greatest rival. He was known for his beautiful right hand, incredible endurance, and was known as the Illinois Thunderbolt. That man was Billy Pepke. Their meeting in Milwaukee would be the first of four and was set for 10 rounds. Into that fight, and Ketchell started the brighter, flooring Billy in the opening seconds with a left hook on the button. Papke explained what happened next and he said, We shook hands as the gong sounded and Ketchell not only held my hand in a vice-like grip, but he pulled me towards him and hit me flush in the face with a hard left, breaking a tooth and knocking me down. Right then, I decided I would get even for that trick. And we will get to that in a while. Papke restored some pride when he put Ketchell down to one knee with a body shot in the fifth, but he returned the favour as we mentioned and put Billy down again in the next round. The rest of the way, it was a battle of resolve as well as skill, and only the bell stopped short at toe-to-toe exchange in the last two rounds. The verdict, after a compelling tussle, went to Ketchell, and he wasted no time in announcing his future plans. He was going to challenge Tommy Burns for the heavyweight crown. Some believed in Ketchell, and others thought he would need at least a year to form a bigger physique. As the San Francisco call noted, Ketchell has been a contradiction in the ring. While he has gone on winning in all sorts of company, flaws have been picked up in his style, and it required this fight to establish his position once and for all. A month later, his first defence was against Hugo Kelly at San Francisco's Coliseum, and he went on to stop Kelly in the third round with such destructive force that Kelly had to be carried back to his corner. Later that month, at the home of Luke Marish, Stanley Ketchell was presented with the middleweight championship belt. And there is a picture online, you can go and see it. That's when he's officially awarded and officially crowned the middleweight champion of the world. Yeah, no claim now, Ketchell's your man. And he then went on to fight Joe Thomas uh, for the fourth and final time in a non-title affair, which ended in a second round knockout. Now, instead of pursuing Tommy Burns, Ketchell decided to sign for a rematch with Billy Pepke in California at Jim Jeffries Athletic Club on Labor Day again on September 7th, but this time 1908. And Big Jeff would actually oversee the bout. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. 
And that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back in these days, it was common for fighters to shake hands at the bell, uh, the first of the first round. But when Ketchel extended his right hand, Petke took a free swing with his left, then unloaded a right hand that caught him flush between the eyes. And that's him getting his own back, basically. The punch sent Stanley down, breaking his nose and swelled his eyes. This has been a long-standing myth that Ketchel was hit with a soccer punch by Patkey before the start of the fight, which has also been discredited. Although there was nothing in the following day fight reports from their corners or their supporters that suggest uh, an incident ever happened. But the fact that Billy Petkey mentioned that he would get his own back after their first fight leaves this open to debate. Again, there's many myths. It's so difficult to be precise. You know, this is over 100 years ago. Make your own mind up. I think Pep got his own back and probably did land a little sucker punch on him. Uh, but now fighting on instinct, as in Ketchel, he hit the deck three times in the first, was floored again in the sixth, and by this point, he was absolutely blind. His eyes had swollen up. He couldn't see a thing. He battled on valiantly. His chief second, Pete, cut his swollen eyes, which is an old technique they used to do, just cut it open just to give him momentary sight. Uh, that happened around the 12th. Before the 12th, when in the 12th, Patkey hammered him with a right, sending him down again for the count of eight. He then followed it up with another right. Uh, but this time, basically, Stanley's just getting pounded. His eyes are cut. His eyes are mashed up. His nose is bust. And Jim Jeffries halted the action. Ketchell offered no excuses for his defeat. But in truth, he had spent way too much time and way too much time partying and not enough training. Allegedly, he weighed 175 when he began getting in condition, dropping 20 pounds in just 12 days. That alone, of course, would take a lot of steam out of a person. But the real reason was that Ketchell had been hitting the pipe, visiting the opium dens in the Bay Area. There was even a bizarre rumour circulating that Ketchell's seconds had used a hypodermic needle to inject him with dope between rounds. Again, just a, an absolute absurd, absurd rumour. Now, he wanted to exact revenge so bad that he did sign for a third meeting with the new champion, Billy Papke, to take place in Vernon, California, near Los Angeles, which took place on Thanksgiving Day, November 26. Ketchell took to the hills during training. He kept clean and he stopped racing cars recklessly. He had whipped himself into the best condition of his fighting career so far and he had recruited Willis Britt to help him train for the rematch. He was in confident mood. He sold his car for around $3,000 and put all the cash down for a bet on himself. On this occasion, there were no handshakes, so no chance for any more advantages. But when the fight started, it was Ketchell who took control. Now, recalling the scene, 
nearly four decades later, revered fight author Billy McCartney described the action and said, the knockout punch was delivered as Papke was backing away from the ropes with guard down. As they separated from a clinch, Papke stepped back with his hands hanging at his side. Quick as a flash, Ketchell took advantage of the opening, swung a left that landed flush on the jaw, and down went Billy. At this point, referee Jack Welsh began the count, and on reaching 10, he added 11 and tossed up the hand of the winner, Stanley Ketchell. Papke was completely dazed, and he didn't even know where he was for several minutes after that fight was over, but Stanley Ketchell, he had exacted his revenge. Brilliant. Great. At Stanley Ketchell, he made history when he regained his middleweight crown, becoming the first person to hold the middleweight title twice. He claimed, now I am ready for Tommy Burns, provided he beats Johnson, as in Jack Johnson. Burns is my dish. I want that heavyweight title, and I am going to get it. I will not fight Johnson, for I have drawn the colour line for keeps. That's what he said, but he does retract this. Uh, One more bout against Papke would take place under a blazing sun on July 10, 1909, once again in Colma, California. Each man would bleed in the fight and each would break a hand. But the winner, by decision, was Ketchell. On a side note, and to round off the rivalry, Billy Patkey had a very, very sad ending to his life in August 1936. His wife, Edna, was granted a divorce back then, 1936. I mean, that would have been a big thing. Patkey kept pestering her for a reconciliation, but his calls fell on deaf ears. Then on Thanksgiving Day of that year, he went to her home and shot her twice, killing her instantly. He then turned the gun on himself and fired three bullets into his chest, the last of which pierced his heart, leaving behind three sons. An absolutely tragic ending to the life of Billy Pepke. But we're going to jump back to Stanley Ketchell, and he eventually purchased a farm near Grand Rapids for his family with his winning, uh, with his winnings, and he had a tendency, like many fighters, of going through his earnings very quickly. In particular, he loved cars, fast cars. His fascination even prompted him to seriously even consider taking up racing. And he said, I want to be a racing chauffeur down at Palm Beach, along with those other speed bugs. When someone pointed out how dangerous it could be, Ketchell replied, the game with these great one-liners, well, I'll take a chance. Ketchell headed to Grand Rapids for a much-needed break from the ring, but before he left, he announced his U-turn on the colour line and he said, I have no objection to fighting blacks, providing there is enough money in sight. He made this statement about a proposed fight with Sam Langford, but it could just as easily have been applied to Jack Johnson or any other noteworthy black opponent. Joe O'Connor had remained Ketchell's manager throughout his career so far, and they had been very successful. So it was surprising when Ketchell sent O'Connor a telegram on January 7th, 1909, informing him that he had signed for a 15-week-long theatrical engagement with Brit, in which Ketchell would join a vaudeville show and box a three-round exhibition twice daily, and that Connor shouldn't make any more engagements until you hear from me. The message finally forced O'Connor to face the harsh reality, and he concluded... That looks as if Brit is to be his manager. I didn't believe it before, but evidently Brit has persuaded him to make the change. 
Well, I haven't a word to say against Ketchell. I picked him up when the world thought him a nobody. But if he thinks he can better himself, this is a matter of business. We always got along well together and had no trouble. For the first year that I handled Ketchell, I had a contract with him. That expired in August and I never bothered to renew it. I always figured that if he was dissatisfied, he could leave me. He offered to sign papers, but I told him that there would not be necessary between us. As far as I know, he took all the money he had left with him when he went to Grand Rapids. I never handled his money for him. After every fight, we had a settlement and I turned over what was coming to him. He actually sounded like he had a pretty good manager there, didn't he, really? He did, he did, and he had quite a good team. I mean, the fact that he went on to win a, a version of the welterweight title, then the middleweight title, and then reclaim it all under O'Connor, it, it sounds like they had a great relationship and probably should have stuck with him, but he does, again, have, an, have another good uh, relationship, a good rapport with Brit. So, and we'll go into all that in a minute. But I think O'Connor was probably... The sort of guy that was, I'm the manager, you're the fighter relationship, whereas Britt and Ketchell have a bit more of a closer relationship and they like to sort of go out together, which we'll go into in a minute. And on the same day O'Connor received that telegram from Ketchell, he found himself placed under arrest. And this is this is Stanley Ketchell, arrested by the Grand Rapids Police Department. So an 18-year-old woman named Elizabeth Hooman also a resident of Grand Rapids, had filed charges against Stanley Ketchell for breach of a promise. Now, according to Hooman, Ketchell had promised marriage to her almost a year prior, on January 20, 1908. So Hooman was seeking damages for the amount of $10,000. Ketchell labelled it as a case of blackmail, and the case was actually settled out of court for an undisclosed fee. After his break to the Grand Rapids countryside, Ketchell arrived back in the big city, attired in cowboy boots and a cowboy hat, and would often pass the time by shooting bottles and tin cans of his six-shooter as uh, that, that he always carried. Now, although having spent many years in Montana, Ketchell was far from the genuine cowboy. Britt had hatched the idea to sell Ketchell off as a rugged outdoors type to the East Coast sports world. Now, according to John Lardner, Britt initially intended to pass Ketchell off as a college boy when he when he first took him to New York, but the cooler heads dissuaded him, as he said. That, that was his words, the cooler heads dissuaded the manager, and he insisted that Ketchell pose as a cowboy. So, it, it, you know, he's got his new manager, and he's, he's trying to promote him, and he thinks making him a cowboy, it's the early 1900s, you know, it, it's still a big thing. Uh, appearances aside, Ketchell was demonstrating terrific power and was the clear force in the middleweight division. One of the most respected journalists of that era, Robert Edgren, wrote a piece on what he witnessed during a Stanley Ketchell training session. And he said, within a few minutes, Ketchell had managed to break two of the ropes on the same bag, which prompted Burt Keyes to offer up a stronger rope. The rope held but the bag didn't after a half a minute of savage punching. And with a bang, the bag burst wide open. What power that he must have had. Well, yeah, definitely must have had a lot of power to be bursting open them bags. Either that or the bags were just that shit that he was just knocking them out for fun. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one or the other, isn't it? We don't know because yeah. it's a different time, of course. Now, continuing on with Robert Edgren's article, they, he observed his sparring sessions, Ketchell's sparring sessions, and he wrote, there's a peculiarity about Ketchell's style that marks him as entirely different from all others. 
It's the same thing that made Fitzsimmons, as in Bob Fitzsimmons, so great. He doesn't extend left hand and foot along the lines taught in boxing schools. Right and left sides are exactly alike to him. He shifts constantly and naturally. Now his left is working and now he's right. He gets in close and punches hard with the right. His feet are shifting in that smooth Fitzsimmons way. As the right lands, the left whips over like a flash to the same mark. Ketcher leans over and sends hooks and uppercuts to the body and shoulder and body swing in with every blow. Now, there is no doubting that Ketcher possessed a lot of power, but his defensive skills were questioned by Edgren and Stanley's response to blocking was, I don't block because my hands are too busy to waste time that way and I get away from blows by moving my head a little. If they are going to land, I take all the steam out of them by moving my head with the punch. Ketchel then explained why he didn't skip and he said, I never use that. I don't do any of those footwork stunts. I don't want to know how to run around. If a fella knows how to run away, he'll do it in a fight. And if he doesn't know how, he'll stay close and fight like the devil. Next up, on March 26, 1909, was the veteran Philadelphia Jack O'Brien. And the respect for one another was admirable when they met at the weigh-in. Extending a hand, O'Brien said, Mr Ketchel, I'm glad to meet you. I didn't know you were so young and good-looking. Your remarkably fine record deceived me. And Ketcher replied again with his one-liner, Low Jack, I've heard a lot about you. <laughs> it's an interesting... It, that them, these two, how they meet, and obviously the fight will go to the set, but just it's in the evolution of boxing right there, the fact that he don't want to move. Uh, 1909 and moving around the ring, as we know today, shows great footwork and, you know, it's all part and parcel of the game. But back then, if you moved away from a fire, you were considered to be a runner, straight up. You know, you just had to stand there and trade. Um, that was the way they rolled back then. Well, any respect between Ketchell and Philadelphia Jack O'Brien went right out the window when both men got into the ring. Ketchell took an overwhelming newspaper decision against O'Brien, who was very lucky to hear the final bell. The Associated Press, they wrote this. It said, Stanley Ketchell decisively beat Jack O'Brien before a packed house at the National AC last night, only the gong depriving him of a knockout over the Philadelphia man. After being floored three times with savage smashes in the final round, O'Brien went down like a log from a fourth vicious blow and was motionless on his face when the bell clanged, just as referee Tim Hurst completed the count of four vicious puncher i mean these guys aren't just getting knocked out they are getting knocked out for about 10 minutes i mean wow uh ketchell was seriously looking to make the move to the heavyweight division at this point and according to brit his weight was increasing and the champion had clocked 185 pounds for an exhibition with tony Capone, who he would later go on and fight as well we don't i don't think we speak too much about tony Capone, but he fights him in exhibition and he goes and fights him in the pro games um, as a proper fight, but Ketchell is working. This is this is now Brit saying Ketchell is working with the wood choppers every day and getting as hard as iron. Uh, Brit continued, the next few months he will weigh 200 pounds and will be big and strong enough to beat any of them. Uh, Brit and Ketchell had their eyes set on Jack Johnson, and Brit said, "This wasn't hot air about fight with Johnson." Why shouldn't Ketchell fight Johnson? And I think we have the best chance for a match. Johnson is coming to America and he will pick out what looks like the easiest mark. Perhaps he thinks that Ketchell 
will be easy for him. And that's the very reason we will have a chance. As for Langford, who was obviously the other heavyweight or middleweight around at the time, if Ketchell fights him, it will be at the middleweight limit. But that's all up in the air as yet. So you've got Jack Johnson, who I think he's now the heavyweight champion, uh, and he's, he's looking for him. But Stanley, I mean, he said £185. I just want to say he never reaches £185 ever. Stanley Ketchell's highest weight is probably about 175 now, the reporter, going back to Robert Edgren again, he didn't hesitate to praise the middleweight champion's heavyweight aspirations. And he said, on the Pacific coast, it is generally believed that Ketchell is the coming champion. Some experts fear he is not quite ready to tackle Johnson, that it would be better if he waited a year or two. But there are few who will not concede that he will someday wear the crown. The fact that he lost to Patkey in their second battle does not count against him, as he redeemed himself in the third encounter. Ketchell is the greatest fighter, the real genuine article they have seen on the coast for some time and all believe that experience and time with the weight he is bound to pick up in maturity will enable him to cope successfully with Johnson or any man in the world. Ketchell and Britt stayed on at the Woodlawn Inn in Westchester County, a place with plenty of open space to do his roadwork and other training measures such as chopping wood. Those that knew Ketchell say he was a heavy sleeper, so he usually kept two, not one, but two loaded guns within his reach at night. Now, one night, while resting after a tough day of training, Ketchell was awakened by a party of acquaintances who decided to play a joke on him. Allegedly, they had just returned from watching the fight between A. Battelle and Patsy Klein, and someone decided it'd be funny to give Ketchell a scare by making him think he was being burgled in the middle of the night. Upon being awakened, Ketchell woke up with both guns blazing and the pranksters legged it. There was another irrational moment from Ketchell while at his training camp at the Woodlawn Inn near Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx, New York. And that was Ketchell once fired a gun through his bedroom door and shot his faithful trainer, Pete the Goat Stone, in the leg when Pete came to wake him up for work. Ketchell then leaped into his big red Lozier car and drove Stone to the hospital for treatment. Hype Igo, who accompanied them, said he sobbed all the way, driving with one hand and propping up Pete's head with the other. I mean, that's hilarious. Wow. Like, it's not hilarious, but it is in the same sense, because it's like, he's that paranoid that he needs to sleep with not one but two guns. And obviously the guys, the acquaintances that came in and woke him up, well, they made a bit of a bad move there, really. They should have really known that he would have got up and shot his guns off if he, if he carries guns with him all the time. But the second one with his trainer, Pete Stone, like, man, that that's just a guy who's got clear, clearly bad paranoia to want to, wanna, as soon as he wakes up, if he hears something, he's, shoot, he's shooting at people. What's all that about? I know. I, I, it's crazy, isn't it? He's just obsessed with having these these two guns with him. And uh, I mean, they obviously didn't know him too well because um, what are they thinking? <laughs> I mean, he sleeps with two guns under his pillow. You ain't going to go and pretend to burgle his house. That's the last thing you'd do. That's even today in America, he wouldn't even do that. Oh, goodness me. I mean, Stanley Ketchup, obviously, as you said, he's obviously, where does this anxiety come from of sleeping with those two guns under his pillow? Well, it may have come from his time on a ranch in Montana. And this was during the days when he was a lot younger, before he even moved into boxing, when he was riding the route. There was a, a Mexican murderer on the loose with a $1,000 reward for his capture, dead or alive. I mean, this is, this, is, this is proper Wild West now. 
Now, whether this story is true or not, it, it could be true. It could be a myth. We will never really know. But it was described by Nick Bond of Boxing News. And this is what he said. Stanley and Jack Stagall, the owner of the Crossbar Ranch, where Ketchell was working at the time, had just come out of the stables after attending to the horses when a rifle slug whizzed through the air and in Stagall's shoulder. Again, the murderer had left his visiting card. Ketchell whipped out his gun and fired back. Immediately, there came return fire from the Mexican. Stanley wasn't hit, but he pretended he was and dropped flat on his back. The Mexican wanted food, and his hunger may have made him a little incautious. He walked stealthily, merely casting a glance at Ketchell as he passed by. Then outshot Stanley's hand. He grabbed the wanted man by the ankle and brought him to the ground on his back. Ketchell was on him like a flash. He got him between his knees and started to strangle him. But wanted to take the man in alive, he gave the Mexican a clip on the jaw and then another. The fugitive passed out unconscious. Stanley, a.k.a. Steve, as he was known by his friends, got his thousand dollar reward i mean wow that's just uh that if you ain't if that ain't red dead redemption i don't know what it is um <laughs> i would love it to be true i mean i really would but we there isn't enough concrete evidence you know this is this is the wild west days anything went back then and it is very very possible but fact or fiction it almost doesn't matter these types of stories will forever be entwined in the history of the wild wild west and uh, this story of the murderous mexican will internally follow the legend of Stanley Ketchell. That's a, that's a great story. It, it does very much feel like Red Dead Redemption, which is what we were saying at the top of the show, and we said there's going to be elements <laughs> of Red Dead Redemption in this story. This is exactly what we were referring to, the murderous Mexican. I mean, true or not, it's still a pretty good story. I mean, the fact that <laughs> Stanley Ketchell basically clocks this guy out, plays dead, clocks him out, takes him out, gets the $1,000 reward. I mean, Brilliant. come on, you know, this, this is a great story, but... Is it all true? I mean, we're never going to know. We're never, ever going to know. And we can only really fantasise and dramatise how, how these events must have gone down. But yeah, it's a, it's a great story. And, and I'm glad that we've been able to put this in for, for the episode because it does make it feel like Stanley Ketchell was just a bit of an outlaw, you know, like a uh, <laughs> yeah. like, like a character out of Red Dead Redemption. Like that's what he does. Kid or yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, going back to the story, and we're back to 1909, uh, and the four hottest prospects to challenge the heavyweight champion Jack Johnson were gentleman Jim Corbett, Jim Jeffries, Al Kaufman and Stanley Ketchell. Although not the biggest, the Michigan assassin was the one being taken more seriously as a heavyweight prospect. Corbett was too old, Jeffries, well he was too rusty and Kaufman, he was still a little green. But Ketchell was tipped by him any experts to pull off a major upset. Then on April 6, 1909, Johnson stated that he would fight Kaufman first because Jeffries failed to cover his $5,000 forfeit. Although Ketchell was the first to cover the forfeit, Johnson felt his potential opponent should acquire himself a reputation in the heavyweight division before being given a shot at his title. Just over a week later, on April the 14th, Jack Johnson, Stanley Ketchell, Willis Britt and James Kofroff finally agreed upon the terms for the fight. All four men signed the contract which would take place in October. The fighters would receive 50% of the gross gate receipts, with 65% going to the winner and 35% going to the loser. Although Kofroff tried to convince Johnson 
to fight the then standard championship route of 45 rounds, Johnson refused and he held firm for a 20 round bout. Now there is a famous picture taken after the fight contract agreement was signed where you can actually see Stanley Ketchell standing next to Johnson wearing high heeled boots and a button up coat which basically concealed the several layers of clothing he was wearing to give himself the appearance of that added bulk. But Johnson, you rightly pointed out earlier, he never really never really weighed over 175 and, and to make it look like he was bigger than what he was, he, he's basically stood there like, like Joey out of Friends when he puts all Chandler's clothes on and he stood there <laughs> trying, to, trying to basically make himself like, you know, I've got I've got this chance here, I've got this chance, look how big I am and he's, he's given this perception to, to the public that you know he is a legitimate threat to Jack Johnson. Well, the San Francisco Chronicle they wrote in the presence of several hundred rabid fight fans today at the matchmaking bee, Ketchell and his great bulk stood alongside Johnson. <laughs> when the articles were signed, Ketchell looked Johnson straight in the eye and smilingly said, Get all the money you can, John, before you face me for that five thousand dollars and the gate receipts. Johnson replied, I have heard that talk before, but Ketchell's display of supreme confidence actually caught the plaudits of the mob. <laughs> ah, brilliant. Uh, he actually fooled the San Francisco Chronicle there, didn't he, as well, with his high heels and his big coat and, and several layers. Look, I mean, you put them alongside each other, there's a, there's a clear difference in size here, but it, he's willing to take him on. I mean, you've got, got to credit Ketchell. He weren't afraid of anyone, and well, Ketchell revealed his and Britt's strategy on how they actually managed to get Johnson to sign that contract. And he said, Britt, whom I consider by far the cleverest manager that ever handled a fighter and myself sit down and we figure out our chances against this man and that man. We sort of dope it out on past performances and a few other items that must be taken into consideration. Then once we have made up our minds, we can we can win. We issue the challenge and go after that man. This is exactly what we did with Johnson. And figure as we will, there isn't an angle in the whole dope sheet but leads us to the conclusion that I can't beat Jack Johnson. So Hype Igor had huge admiration for Stanley, but he had a slight managerial claim uh, towards the back end of his career. But that arrangement was abruptly terminated. So following a, vi- a return visit from Philadelphia... Hype was in his office in New York uh, when Stanley came in through his lovely, you know, his two pistols that he loves on the table. And he said, I want to talk a little business to your hype. I think I prefer having Wilson Misner manage me from now on. Slightly intimidated, although he liked him, Hype calmly agreed, saying, that's fine with me. <laughs> Misner was actually described as a wit and lit- literary con man in uh, John Lardner's article, Down Great purple valleys written on may 1954 now lardner he also wrote a story that was told to him by misner on becoming stanley's manager for that short period of time in the back end of his career they said misner would tell of a day when he went looking for the fighter and found him in bed smoking opium with a blonde and a brunette well the story is possible it has often been said that Ketchell smoked hop and he and he knew brunettes by the carload and blondes by the platoon. <laughs> but it's more likely that Misner manufactured the towel to hang on of his own lines. And this is what Misner said. What did I do? He would say. What could I do? 
I told him to move over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we're getting the uh, we're getting the picture here that, that Stanley Ketchell is very much like a lot of the tales that we've told for season two, where you know these guys dabble in the drugs and they love the women, and Stanley Ketchell evidently was just the same. Even all them many years <laughs> before some of the stories yeah. we've covered, he was he was pretty much the same. Now going back to his boxing career, and on June the ninth, nineteen oh nine. Ketchell fought a rematch with Philadelphia Jack O'Brien. But it was not as close as their first encounter. Ketchell nailed O'Brien with a punch to the stomach, followed by one to the jaw, sending him down to the canvas for the fourth time that night. He managed to pull himself up using the ropes, but the referee, McGuigan, stopped the proceedings by saying, I was afraid Ketchell might kill O'Brien if he hit him again. A punch over the heart might have ended him. Ketchell's credibility following his destruction of Philadelphia Jack... Well, it went through the roof, and most sports enthusiasts considered his chances against Jack Johnson to be pretty good. The betting odds proved it too. They had been 2-1 to one in Johnson's favour, but now they were even. The Philadelphia Record newspaper went one further and referred to Ketchell as the next heavyweight champion. The following month, Ketchell accepted the offer of a fourth Billy Papkey fight to take place on July the 5th, 1909. With Stanley enjoying his spare time racing around in his brand new Lozier, chasing the women and spending too much time enjoying the festivities the nightlife had to offer, the reports started to circulate that he was slacking, taking the same approach to this meeting with Papke as he had done for their second fight. However, a confident catcher reassured the sports writers that he would get into the fight, trim for Papke, without much difficulty. Despite the daily build-up to the main event, the result proved a major disappointment, as Harry B. Smith noted, to use a time-worn expression that could not be better placed, they fought like two old women. Now, the referee Billy Roach awarded the decision to Ketchell, due in large part to the fact that he scored the only clean knockdown in the fight, which occurred in the 10th round. So he's basically saying that a fight was shit, it was dud, it wasn't great to watch, uh, so... Yeah, he obviously isn't motivated for that fight. He's beat him before and he's getting... It's like he's overlooking Papke at this point. I get the impression from the story that he's overlooking him and he's got his eyes you know, solely fixed on this Jack Johnson fight. Uh, absolutely. I mean, he's beat him. I mean, we've, we've finished off with... Uh, Pepke probably a little bit earlier from what how it ended for his life, but um, he was still a, obviously the, one of the best middleweights around Pepke and 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 Ketchel. But yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. That that is 100% the impression. Um, it, although he was doing this sort these type of thing, you know, seeing the women going to brothel, smoking opium, uh, having plenty to drink, he was still able to get through fights. I mean, that's how good he was against the the best other guys that are out there. I mean, there is a reason as well for this scrappy affair. It was down to both fighters uh, sustaining injuries during the fight. And according to Dr. F. Nicholas Jacobs of San Francisco, Ketchel had actually fractured the capitate in his right wrist. In addition, he actually dislocated his left thumb. Uh, Britt therefore decided to pull his fighter, as in Stanley Ketchel, out of the fight with Flynn. Um, and stated that he and Stanley would be heading to the mountains for a few days so Ketchell could re-recuperate. Ketchell and Britt had been looking forward to a vacation prior to the beginning of training for the Pepke fight. They had intended to take off to the mountains and hunt fish for eight weeks before returning to the city to train for Jack Johnson. Britt was more than likely 
also desperate to get his man away from the city life, as we keep mentioning with these brothels and the opium dens, as Ketchel was once again uh, going at the pace, as they said. Uh, chasing the ladies and uh, crashing cars was another thing of his. He was in another crash, a car crash. He had one before this. We'll speak about it in a minute. But so he had another car crash, which occurred on July 20th, when he collided with a wagon, straining one of his arms and suffering lacerations on the back of his hands. Now, Ketchell had crashed another time when he was with High Pegar and also a female passenger was in the car. They came off the road and ended up in a ditch. He was uh, he loved to drive. He loved to drive fast and was just obviously a bit reckless and loved to. <laughs> he just didn't care. He used to tell Hype and many others too that he was sure he would die young. Uh, Hype spoke of nights when the two went driving together in that Lozier with uh, Ketchell at the wheel. And as the car whipped round curves on two tyres, Hype would shout in fear and Ketchell would say, Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. It's, it's got to happen, Hype. I'll die before I'm 30 and I'll die in a fast car. Well, luckily for Hype and other friends, uh, not lucky for Stanley, it would happen in a different way for him uh, when it did happen. Ketchell, thankfully, took no one with him. We'll go into that, obviously, in a little while, but um, obviously he loves to drive around in fast cars and crash them, as well as smoke opium and see loads of women. Well, the irony of all that is that Jack Johnson, who we've done a career profile on, and was Stanley's next opponent, well, he was also a thrill-seeker who enjoyed racing cars and chasing the women. On an early afternoon on Saturday the 16th of October, Stanley was driving his white Lozier with Britt as his passenger. When driving past the Mission Street Arena, Jack Johnson appeared out of nowhere and attempted to pass them while driving his Thomas Flyer. Stanley took it as a challenge from Johnson for a race, which he happily obliged. They were neck and neck going more than 70 miles per hour when Johnson finally took the advantage and overtook the middleweight and his manager. The similarities between the pair were uncanny and many suggest that they spent many nights together painting the towns red but geographically their paths would have only met a handful of times. Both liked the nightlife and when Ketchell dragged himself out of a bar at 5am one morning, looking pale and hanging out of his ass, he spoke to a newspaperman about Johnson and he said, at the pace he's living, I can whip him. Now as we've described in Jack Johnson's career profile, he was always willing to goad his opponents. Not so much when he became the world heavyweight champion, more when he was a challenger, but there must have been something about Ketchell that he liked. Maybe it was their common interest of cars and women. Whatever the reason, Johnson called around to visit Ketchell in New York one afternoon in his big motor. He was wearing his £20 driving coat and he asked Stanley to join him on a night out. 
We don't know if that was ever accepted or if it ever happened, but what we do know is that Ketchell did joke about this afterwards and said, I wish I'd asked him to bet that coat on the fight. I could use it to scare the crows on my farm. <laughs> he loves he loves his uh, one-liners, doesn't he? He's very uh, he's a very quick-witted man, weren't he? Stanley Ketchell. He was really quick-witted by all accounts. I mean, everyone sort of enjoyed being around him, but he was hard and fast, like like Johnson. I mean, he's ten years younger than Jack Johnson at this point. I think Johnson's knocking in his thirties, and uh, Ketchell's what 23? 23, I think. So, I mean, very young. And obviously, you know, when you're young and you're out partying and doing what you're doing, you can recover quickly. 5 a.m. in the morning, and he's joking and saying that he's living at a pace. I mean, Ketchell, the pair of them. Um, it's just quite funny. Uh, people say they were out all the time, but, yeah, it just doesn't make sense. In America, back in them days, unless they were getting planes everywhere, there's no way they could have been together as often. I'm sure they probably would have enjoyed each other's company on a regular basis, but um, I think when they did go out, it was a, it was a messy night by the sounds of things. And, uh well, rumours did surface that Johnson and Ketchell used uh, the Sill Rock House to practice a fix on their fight, which was agreed at their contract signing in April. So this is this is this is again these are all rumours, but it's possible. I mean, both fighters denied these claims, but it would seem likely that they may have began to rehearse the fight out. Uh, but with many witnesses around, they decided to make it out like they were joking. Now, although the fix was off the table, Johnson did agree to let Ketchell, in his own words, make a good showing for at least 12 of the rounds. Now, the longer it lasted, the more likely fans would pay to see it replayed at the movies. Johnson was said to have promised the promoters not to knock Ketchell out, and the unpredictable Ketchell promised not to try to win. That was what was been said. Now, the idea was for it to end as a draw and then the rematch would be more financially beneficial and would draw a huge crowd for their second fight. Their second fight would then be a real fight between the pair. Johnson and his friends did admit that the whole bout was meant to be an exhibition with no damage done. It's also said by Stanley Ketchell backers and fans that it was never staged at all and it was a fair and square fight all the way. His fans also said Ketchell, who stood at 5'10", weighed at 160. Neutrals say weighed at 170. And the official announcement, apparently, was 180. Um, not quite sure that's right, to be honest. But officially, Johnson stood at 6'1", weighed at 205. But Ketchell's fans say 210 or 220. Proof that fact and fiction was always a blurred lines in these days. You just can't take the black and white print that's in front of you. You have to source as much information as you can and make your own mind up because that's basically what it is back then. Now, originally scheduled to take place on October 12, 1909, it was moved to the 16th when promoter Jim Coffroth changed the date for business reasons, saying Saturday was a better day than Tuesday to draw a large crowd. I mean, what do people think about this? They're just going off for a moment of the story, literally what they're saying is they're fixing the fight. They're fixing the yep. first fight. I mean, how many conversations have we had about the Ali Liston fight, the second fight? I mean, was that a fix? Was it a dive? People to this day will still argue that. But this is pretty much black and white. These are these are stories that are, are you know, as far as we're aware, they are true, true, true stories. You know, like, this is a fixed fight. This first fight was supposed to be fixed. But of course, we've got a description of this fight and how things actually went down. And there is very famous pictures and footage of this fight that you can actually get on YouTube and on the internet. But 
the fact that it was going to be fixed, I mean, what, does that mean anything? I mean, is there any significance to the fact that these two guys were just playing the system a little bit to get some money and then, then make that money in the second fight? I mean, how would boxing look at that today? They, they would absolutely despise it. You know, people within boxing would hate that. It would be, you know, they'd be suspended, they'd be banned. But then this is 1909. This is a completely different era. This is over, what, was it 100 years ago? You know, this happened. Yeah. So... You know, we're living in a completely different time. I just, I just always wondered what people's thoughts were on that. Like, it was a fixed fight. It was meant to be fixed so they could make money on the second fight. I suppose people might think that about some of the fights today as well, because some of the fights today do feel the same way. You kind of feel like, you know, they've had this fight and they've carried each other through it on purpose so that a second fight can happen for the for the finance of it. And it's going to generate more money. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, we we read when uh, we've been through Jack Johnson's sort of autobiography if you like as and and he's a couple of other books with jack and the documentary although they don't mention too much about some of the promoter stuff promoters as such uh i've had other stories where they sat in a room and like literally word for word where people have leaked this information where they're sort of johnson sitting there with his missus ketchel's like iron iron up his missus thinking why is she with him because she's white and like all this stuff like the racial element aspect to it all and Johnson's sort of saying, yeah, look, I'll, I'm happy to, to let this fight go the 20-round distance to make it look half-decent, and then um, we'll have a rematch, and we'll have it for real. And because of that, you know, the middleweight and the heavyweight champion, back then there was no light heavyweight, there's no super middleweight, so, you know, it's the, the difference in weight is huge. But you've got the two biggest guys in boxing of the time fighting against each other, it's going to generate interest. And obviously, if it's a draw then everyone's going to want to go and see it. Even if they know that something's not right, even if they smell it like a rat. But the fact is, if these stadiums are huge, there's no cameras. So if you're sitting way, way back, how are you even supposed to see what's going on in, in the ring unless you're ringside? So there's always, even even when the fights are actually going on in these arenas, there's you can't even get any concept. It's not like different angles we get today. So if you're sitting right at the back of a crowd and you're like, well, I was there, you know, at least I was there. So you can say that you wouldn't have seen anything. Let's be honest. You would have just heard through the it's like Chinese whispers from the ringside all the way back to let you know whether the fight's actually good or not. So um, there's so many elements to this where they could quite easily make it a big dramatization in the ring, like a little stage, stage the fight out and make it look half decent, make it a draw. And then the second one's for real, more interest, more money. I think, Sean, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I think absolutely it happened. My absolute, I, I can't, there's too much information out to suggest it didn't. Well, when you watch the footage that is available of the fight and you read the reports, Johnson almost never used his right hand and, and did in fact carry Ketchel for 11 rounds. I think carried is almost literally the right word for Johnson because there were several times where he props up the smaller Ketchel to keep him from falling. I think once or twice he wrestled or threw him across the ring and Jack didn't go that easy on him. He was actually quite ruthless. And it was in a subtle way. He worked his left on the side of Ketchell's face and it looked like a dark hamburger after a few rounds. But in the 12th, all parties threw the book out of the window and what had been agreed before had changed. It was pure melodrama what happens next. Johnson's obviously winning comfortably, but then midway through the 12th, Ketchell strayed from the script. He and his manager, Britt, had evidently planned a bit of a double cross. And as Johnson sent yet another long, lazy jab towards Ketchell's face, Britt shouted, Now, Stanley! Now! 
and the middleweight champion lunged forward with an overhand right. It landed just behind the champion's left ear and his feet went out from under him. He caught himself with one hand and then sprang up again and a sheepish grin came over his face. Although smiling, Johnson was angered and William J. Slattery of the call wrote, the mammoth black champion stretched his unequal opponent on the floor with a right and a left flush on the jaw. Like a panther at bay, he delivered the two wallops which brought the uneven contest to an end. Two of Stanley Ketchow's teeth had pierced his lip and a couple more had been removed and embedded in Johnson's glove. The footage shows Johnson basically brush the teeth off from his glove as Ketchell lays on the canvas with his arms outstretched, dead to the world, for what has been documented as an hour before recovering his senses. And and that footage is there. And, and the way that footage has been put together is, is quite... It's the best you're ever going to get for a period of time like that. You know, you watch it, you see you see Stanley do this double cross where he, he, he lands on Johnson, Johnson goes down, and you can probably see and feel what Johnson's feeling there. And he's thinking, the little bastard, the little <laughs> bastard, d- d- he's done one over on me here. And he, as soon as he gets up, he just absolutely sparks him. He sparks Stanley Ketchell out completely. And that just goes to show you like the, the weight difference. All the people that were saying Ketchell's got a chance... Jack Johnson just proved them utterly wrong. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it, as you say, it's probably the best footage you're going to get on YouTube of, of this time. Um, I mean, the, the Jeffries fight hasn't even got as much en- enough footage on, on the actual knockout in a way. I mean, it is a vicious, vicious knockout. I'm, for me, there's no way Ketchell weighs 180. I mean, he might just go over 175 possibly, but I don't think he's near 180. And, and I think that Johnson, you're looking at, is easily in over 220, uh, over 210, 100%. So, you know, is, is he, is a, you're looking at 50 pounds there. Uh, and not only that, Johnson was an absolutely vicious finisher himself. Poor Stanley got absolutely just wiped out. I mean, he got knocked out by, I think there's three or four different documented evidence we found that said he was out cold for an hour. So, um, teeth knocked out. Wow. What a vicious KO. Well, Ketchell did recover and he recuperated from that Johnson fight at Hot Springs, Arkansas. Uh, tourists actually saw him relaxing at a spa with a young lady on his arm <laughs> with his money. He's already got quite a bit of money from the fight. A few days later, at around 1 p.m. on the afternoon of Saturday, October 30, 1909, Willis Britt suffered a stomach hemorrhage and passed away around 4.30 p.m. Now, Britt was actually an alcoholic uh, and he actually took numerous prescription drugs over the counter, which today would have been illegal. But that concoction over the years finally took its toll and ended in fatal fashion for Britt. Ketchell took Britt's death hard and he told Harry Smith, I have had dozens of telegrams from all over the country from men who would like to manage me. But after Britt, they all look like a poor lot. Willis Britt, was worth half of what a fighter could make. But as far as I can see, most of these managers would simply be an expense. A lot of the messages that have come, I haven't even opened as yet, and they're all the same sort. They all want to crack at the money that I can get for them. And I learned a lot from Willis Britt about the game and probably more, no more myself than two thirds of the men who would like to handle me. Now, the legendary boxing historian Harry Schaefer noted 
on Ketchell's uh, mentality following Britt's death. Just before I say this, he's, we've already mentioned where he was at before that. Well, Stanley, as he says, was now veering out of orbit. He had money in his pocket and away from centre stage, he maintained a very public life of drinking, womanising and violence. From the saloons on Montana to the Barbary Coast, wandering through opium dens and houses of ill repute, always, almost always armed and generally dangerous. So he's at the absolute bottom at this point, absolutely demolishes him. Uh, Brit's death and both Ketchell and Battling Nelson who was also one of Brit's other fighters decided that they would take their time when signing with somebody else but Stanley young boy 23 years of age or 24 uh, just before his 24th birthday he loses a, a manager and a close friend and he just hits an abyss well, it was at this point that Wilson Misner came into the picture as his manager, but he was more of a mate, his partner in crime who poured alcohol on the flame that was Stanley Ketchell, noted Harry Schaefer. Yet Ketchell remained active, and in March of 1910, he went six hard rounds in a no-decision fight with Frank Klaus at the National AC in Pittsburgh. The next month, he engaged in a no-decision bout with Sam Langford in Philadelphia. Now, we have covered this for the career profile of Sam Langford, but we will go through this particular story again for, for the benefit of people that might have not heard that podcast yet. Now, they were originally scheduled to meet before the Ketchell Johnson fight in July of 1909, but the New York Police Commissioner and District Attorney basically made up some legal jargon and advised that the police would secure warrants for their arrests if the fight had gone ahead. Instead, they met in Philadelphia in December of 1910, but it was also shadowed in mystery. Langford said that he was threatened by an unknown man over the telephone who told him not to knock out Ketchell early. The man told him that a couple of gunmen from New York would have him covered from the moment he entered the ring. Sam told the Australian trainer Duke Mullins that he fought with one eye on Ketchell and another looking for the gunman. When the fight got underway after the National Athletic Club, it was clear by reporters at ringside that Sam was not demonstrating his normal ring generalship. One newspaper described one of the rounds as having a slight odour of a rat to it. It's also reportedly said, who is Sam trying to kid? He couldn't miss that badly if he was drunk and had one leg cut off. I think it's pretty evident that Sam carried Ketchell for those six rounds, but when the bell rang, Sam smiled and later revealed that he whispered into Ketchell's ear, see you in San Francisco, Mr Ketchell. There was a promise of a rematch in the West Coast for the title in a few months. But that would never happen. It just says it just shows you. And I mean, Sam Langford and Jack Johnson. I think it's, it's it's pretty clear that they were the they were the best fighters around. Stanley Ketchell was behind uh, in, but he, you know, Langford didn't get his chance. He did get a chance to fight Ketchell, but it was another one of those bit of a fix. And uh, later on down the line, when they have their second fight, then they will have a, a proper fight. And obviously, Ketchell didn't didn't throw the, the, the double cross this time like he did with Jack Johnson because probably the same thing would have happened against Langford. And not only that, he's down in the dumps, but he still manages to fight, still manages to win. This That fight again as well with uh, Langford, you will see sometimes it's down as a loss and, and Langford wins, but others say it's a newspaper decision and it pretty much across the board is a draw. So um, it's more or less put down as a draw. But yeah, Ketchell, he fought three more times while being managed by Hype and then Wilson. 
He knocked out Porky Dan Flynn and Willie Lewis within a span of 11 days. Then in his final bout, he knocked out Jim Smith in the fifth round on June 10 in New York. Now, Ketchell waved to the jubilant crowd and hopped over the ropes to leave the ring. Little did they know it would be the last time he would enter the ring to participate in a boxing match. Harry D. Cashman, who was the then sports editor for The Sun in New York, recalled an encounter he had with Ketchell shortly before he left to travel to Reno. And he said, this is Stanley Ketchell, in his sleep, his former manager, Willis Britt, appeared. His hat was tilted back and he had the usual big cigar in one corner of his mouth come on Steve come up here with me and let me make some good matches for you then I woke up covered in perspiration I mean he's it's, I think the heroin's probably not helping him uh, having these crazy nightmares because he's still grieving and after speaking with Cashman Ketchell took a trip to Reno Nevada he went there because he's going to help out Jack Johnson to perform to prepare for the fight of the century against Jim Jeffries on July 4, 1910. When Ketchell entered Jeffries' camp to wish him luck, the former heavyweight champion said, I don't want you here. You've been fooling around with that, Johnson. He used a bit more of a derogatory term. And I don't think you belong here at all. At first, Ketchell grinned. Then Jeffries said, put that fellow out. And he was escorted out of the camp. Now, Ketchell only embarrassed himself further by formulating a plan to save, as he, as he said to someone, Jeffries from humiliation from Johnson. When he was being introduced into the ring as a celebrity guest, he was actually going to walk over to Jeffries, pretend to shake his hand and then knock him out cold. When the promoter text Rickard learned of this plan, he put several measures in place to make sure that Ketchell never came anywhere near Jeffries on the day of the fight. <laughs> so again, it's another an Brilliant. accusation and a rumor. Did it really happen, or was it gonna really happen? It makes you wonder, doesn't it? Like uh, Stanley Ketchell seems the type of guy at this point of his life that uh, no fucks are given. It seemed like no fucks <laughs> are given. He he always felt like that kind yep. of guy, but at this point, when things are getting really low, it's quite possible that he would have done that. Now, by August, Ketchell's health had deteriorated, and he was almost certainly addicted to opium to a point where he had to cancel his fight with Bill Lang in New York. While Ketchell was in a bad place, his family seemed to be doing well. According to the 1910 census, on April the 30th, 1910, Julia Ketchell was living in a house in Detroit and was now widowed after remarrying and had a six-year-old son. All five of her children were still alive. Leon Ketchell was living with an aunt, Mary Polsky in her house in Grand Rapids, along with Mary's son and daughter-in-law, sister and brother-in-law, and a boarder. Now, on April the 19th, Ketchell's dad, Thomas, and his brother, John, were living on a farm near Plainfield, Michigan, along with a hired hand. Thomas Ketchell had bought a farm with Stanley's gift he gave to his father, which was $3,500 in gold in the summer <laughs> of 1909, so he could fulfil his lifelong dream of owning his own ranch. Without anyone close to him in the city, the middleweight champion must have thought some time alone with his family might actually help him get his life back on track. In September of 1910, Stanley Ketcher was worn down by his overindulgences with alcohol, alleged abuse of opium and constant partying. So he travelled to Grand Rapids, Michigan for a break when he stumbled across a man on his holidays named Roland P. Dickerson. He was an Ozarks millionaire 
Dickerson was a successful Springfield banker, a businessman, a super patriot, a sports buff and a former private in the Spanish-American War. Now in Springfield, Missouri, he was known as the colonel to his friends. Pete Dickerson and he owned an 860-acre ranch in Webster County, which is 45 miles from Springfield. So on September 15, from Michigan, Colorado, Dickerson telegraphed home that he would be returning to Springfield on the evening train with Stanley Ketchell, whose mother was obviously Julia Cassell, or is, is dad as Ketchell. I think the family pretty much changed the name to Ketchell at this point. Uh, was an old friend of Dickerson's boyhood days in Michigan. So this Dickerson knew Julia, obviously Stanley's mum. Now, after the chance visit, Stanley had decided he was going back with Dickerson to his ranch where he would train, add weight and prepare for his up and coming the next fight. Dickerson introduced Ketchell to Springfield Society. He joined the Elks Club and became a well-known figure in Springfield, even apparently taking Dickerson's pet lion, lion cub, for walks on a lead. <laughs> Uh, less than a month after he arrived, Ketchell wrote to his friend in the Bronx and it read, Springfield, Missouri is my place now. It is the best country in the world and I have tried them all and I know. He then went on to uh, break some shocking news and he said, I have quit the fighting game and I am going into the farming business. I have bought 32,000 acres of timberland and 800 acres of the best farming land in the world. Now, whether Ketchell was really or really had planned to quit boxing or was just keeping himself relevant in the public domain and press is anyone's guess. I mean, we don't know, but we do know that he did have every intention of defending his middleweight title because he is still the middleweight champion. Although he fought, fought Jack Johnson heavyweight, he is still regarded as the middleweight champion in the world. That was until he was actually offered $30,000 to fight a certain heavyweight Sam McVeigh in Paris, who we mentioned frequently in Jack Johnson and Langford's uh, career profiles. Now, he wired his manager, Pete the Goat Stone, who Ketchell shot in New York, get trunks ready for trip and get reservations ready. So Stanley, you know, $30,000 he's going to get himself in shape, whip himself into shape, and he's going to fight Sam McVeigh. Now, while in the middle of his training, Ketchell and Dickerson began to lay the foundations of his newly purchased land, and he had, no, but he had no experience as a businessman whatsoever. To gain that knowledge on how he would manage that land and make a profit, he and Dickerson agreed that he would manage his ranch in Webster County for a short while to prepare him for when he's going to take over the reins of his land. Well, Ketchell would use that time to get back in shape while learning the trade. Dickerson decided to dismiss his present ranch manager, C.E. Bailey, and replace him with Ketchell. But due to his inexperience in ranching and business, Dickerson hired the Spears Agency to find a ranch handler and a housekeeper to help Ketchell with his duties on the ranch. On Monday morning, October the 10th, Walter Dipley and Goldie Smith, who were using the name Hertz and identifying themselves as a married couple, went to the Spears Agency and inquired about work. Spear told Walter and his wife, I might have a job for you. So he sent them to see R.P. Dickerson in the afternoon. Spear told them that this man is very particular and wants to see a party before he hires them. The Hertzes, well, they satisfied Dickerson when he interviewed them that Monday afternoon and he hired them as a housekeeper and a ranch handler. 
Their wages was $30 a month along with room and board. And Dickus had told him, I'm going to get out the ranch on Wednesday. I'm going to make a change out there. You can go to work right away then. On Wednesday morning, October the 12th, Goldie and Walter met Dickerson at the depot and they boarded the train and left Springfield for Conway, the closest railroad town to the ranch. All three travelled on the same train, but in different carts, so it wasn't until they got off at Conway that Walter and Goldie were finally introduced to their new boss, Stanley Ketchell. They travelled from the station in a rented carriage, which was about seven miles away, and they arrived in the early afternoon. What Stanley and Dickerson didn't know about their new employees was that the Hertzes were not legally married. So Walter Dipley was 23, was a Christian country native whose parents lived at Webb City in Jasper County. He had served in the Navy for 17 months, was court-martialed twice and was a deserter. Goldie Smith was 22, a year younger, was born in Texas County, was first married at the age of 13, then again at 14, had a child from her second marriage and was living in Kansas. In truth, the phony married couple had only ever known each other for one month before they got their job job on the ranch. Walter Dipley left his parents' house in Webb City on Sunday morning, September 11, to visit his sister, who lived in Blue Creek, south of Chadwick, about 35 miles southeast of Springfield in Christian County. Now, Dipley travelled to Springfield, where he caught the train to Chadwick. On the same train was Goldie Smith on her way from Kansas to visit her mother and stepfather who lived in the same community as Dipley's sister. Now, the train terminated in Chadwick, but Goldie still had another 10 miles to go. Now, the damsel in distress, she asked the constable and hotel manager, John Bowles, how she should get to her mother's place. So Bowles told her, look, there's this young fella here who's going out the same way, same neighbourhood, and it, it might make it cheaper on both of you to hire a rig together and go out there. Well, he introduced Walter to Goldie. They hired a rig and began travelling south to their different destinations. Now, somewhere along the way, they become very friendly and decided to keep each other company while visiting their relatives. That was when Walter suggested to Goldie that they play a joke on his sister and tell her that Goldie was him and Goldie were married. And she agreed. It was during this visit that their fake story sparked an attraction between the couple and they become an item. And Walter recalled it began to get fast and fierce. Now smitten with his female companion, he asked for her hand in marriage for real. Goldie refused and said she was not in condition to get married and didn't know whether she had a divorce from her second husband. Rather than make it legal... They agreed to live together as man and wife and would be hitched as soon as Goldie could find out if she was still married or not. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With their family visits now completed and running short of money, they left Christie Encounter to look for some employment. And they arrived in Springfield late Friday afternoon, October the 7th, and took a room at a boarding house, registering as man and wife and began using the name Hertz. Five days later, they had acquired a job on a ranch and had former middleweight champion Stanley Ketchell as their boss. Walter and Goldie were temporarily placed in an old log house across from the main ranch house where Dickerson and Ketchell stayed. On October 13th, 1910, Walter Dipley painted the north side of the new barn while Goldie cooked at the main house and by the afternoon, Walter was working in the fields helping to plant wheat. That night after dinner, Walter borrowed a .22 rifle from Ketchell, telling him he wanted to kill the intruding rodents. Although we're not precisely sure when, but Stanley had early infuriated Dipley after reprimanding him for beating a horse. The couple spent their second night at the ranch in the log house with the plan of moving to the main house the next day where Stanley slept that night. Two days later, on the Saturday morning of October the 15th, Goldie made breakfast while Dickley fed the horses and he explained, I knew the boys would be after them to take them out to work. So after feeding the horses, Dipley and Goldie sat down for breakfast. And about six o'clock in the morning, Goldie later recalled, it wasn't hardly plum daylight yet. So it was like that, just about to turn light. And Ketchell came out of his bedroom um, in, onto the front porch and he was carrying his usual .45 Colt revolver on his waistband. On his waistband, the little .22 rifle that Dipley had borrowed uh, and got reprimanded after was actually sitting on the end of the bed. Now, following breakfast, Dipley went out onto the front porch for his smoke, and Ketchell returned to the dining room and sat down for his breakfast with his back to the kitchen door. Goldie served him, Dipley finished his cigarette, and then he re-entered the house. And this is what Dipley described to a courthouse from this moment. Stanley questioned Walter. What in hell are you doing around the house at this time? Why ain't you out on the field? Dipley responded, I'm not going out the field today, I've quit. A baffled Stanley asked, what in hell was the matter with you this morning? Dipley answered, I suppose you are awful damned innocent that you don't know what is the matter. We will go into what Dipley was accusing Stanley of once we tell the rest of this story. Now, in Dipley's court statement, he said that Stanley then said, don't you start nothing here or I will give you some of this. And he opened his shirt and showed his gun. And Dipley responded, I guess you would give me some of that all right. Ketchell said, yes, God damn you. If you start anything, I will shoot you too. So this is all Dipley's account. Dipley then recalls, will you? And in his own words, explain what happened next. Well, this is what Dipley said in his words, what happened next. He said, I jumped to the foot of the bed and grabbed the little rifle that was sitting there. 
He put his hand in his bosom when he said, If you start anything, I'll shoot you in two. I grabbed the little rifle at the corner there and jumped into the kitchen backwards or sideways. Ketcho was standing at the time. He got up from the table and was standing and looking over his left shoulder and had his hand on his gun in his bosom. I told him, Throw up your hands or take your hand off your gun. I don't know which it was that I said, he said. By God, I won't. And then I shot. The excuse for the hostilities actually stemmed from the morning before, on October the 14th. Goldie told the court that she had been sexually assaulted by Stanley Ketchell and she said he kind of took hold of me and started. I started to jerk away from him and he started to halloo. He told me not to halloo. Halloo is another word for, for crying or for shouting out to attract attention. And she continued to say, I was afraid to halloo because I was afraid he would kill me. He had his gun on him. Whether or not Goldie was assaulted by Stanley Ketchell, we will never know. Goldie did explain in court that she was in the dining room during this heated exchange and she recalled saying, Oh, Mr Ketchell, don't shoot Walter. That was what I said. My husband told Ketchell to take his hand off his gun and he said, No, by God I won't. And then he shot. After Ketchell was shot, he stumbled past Goldie into the middle of the room and fell. She ran out onto the front porch and deeply legged it out the back door. Goldie was asked if anyone returned to check on Stanley and her response was yes sir then I heard a noise back in there and I came in I thought my husband was in there with him I ran back in and went to the door of the kitchen there and just as I got there I seen my husband right there and I knew that he wasn't in the other room my husband said to me come on mama let's go Dipley had returned while Ketchell lay on the floor with a hole in his back and stole his .45 revolver, and also nicked his wallet as well. He testified that I was afraid that Ketchell would revive and use the weapon on them. Two other employees on the ranch, Bailey and Brazil, returned from hunting around 6.30am, 6.30, 7.30, and they saw Goldie and Dipley standing outside the main house. Dipley was carrying Stanley's .45 revolver, and Bailey called out, What's the trouble? To which Dipley replied, I shot the blank. Bailey must have been suspicious. So he looked in on Ketchell and discovered that he had been shot, who had now managed to get himself off the floor and onto the bed. And that's what he was laying on. Bailey instantly knew what had happened and called Dr. O.C. Benarge in Conway to come out and help Ketchell. He also called Pete Dickerson in Springfield before returning to Brazil's house, where they then contacted the local constable, who was Alex Anderson. The phone call to Dickerson set in motion a series of of events. Dickerson learning that the morning train to the north, uh, the northeast had uh, just left, ordered a special train. I mean, he was a wealthy man, so he ordered a special steam train to take him uh, to Conway, along with two Springfield physician doctors, Fulbright and Fulton. Well, Dickerson then called Emmett Newton, a friend and newspaperman, and a Springfield policeman, Alfred Sampe, and ordered him to bring bloodhounds to trail the assailant, Dipley, who was now on the run. The train left the Mill Street passenger station at 10.14am. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, a crowd had begun to gather. Dr Bernard of Conway and Constable Anderson had now arrived. George Noland, a carpenter who had been building the new barn, went in and stayed with Ketchell throughout most of the morning. Ketchell kept asking Noland for water and said, I guess they got me. 
there would later be much cross-examination about whether Ketchell said they or he got me. Nolan discovered the hole in Ketchell's back where the bullet had entered and it had struck a major blood vessel in his right lung and the pleural cavity was filling with blood, making breathing and talking difficult. Goldie was still in the Brazil house, but Dipley had ran. The special train was approaching Stafford when Dickerson and Newton realised that no one had called the Webster County Sheriff, C.B. Cobb Shields, to tell him what had taken place. They had an engineer blow an emergency warning on the whistle as they passed through Stafford and the conductor threw a note to the station agent asking him to telegraph ahead to Sheriff Shields. The sheriff and several deputies boarded the train in Marshfield and the train continued to Conway making the 43 mile trip from Springfield in 45 minutes. They all finally arrived in Conway about 11am. Dickerson and his entourage rented two carriages and sped for the ranch which took 35 minutes and they arrived at approximately 11.45am. Oh, it's all uh, gone a bit crazy, isn't it? Now, while the train, uh, the special train, waited at Conway for the returning Dickerson party and the injured Stanley Ketchell for the ride to the nearest hospital, which was in Springfield, when they arrived in the room where Ketchell lay, Newton testified that Dickerson explained, Stanley, speak to me. How did this happen? Ketchell, unable to speak, whispered, I was sitting at the kitchen table and I was shot in the back by Mr. Hertz. Get the woman too for she robbed me. No money was found on Ketchell's pockets, uh, which was very unusual because he made a habit of carrying large amounts of cash and flashing it around. But he was still wearing his diamond rings, which is something they didn't take. Now, both Goldie and Dipley denied ever taking any money from Ketchell. After seeing his dear friend, or some have suggested son, although Julia Kissell had uh, denied these uh, rumours and allegations. Dickerson ran from the house shouting and accusing Smith and Dipley of robbing and killing his son. So, yeah, this is a thing. Dickerson saying it's his son. He sort of, he wasn't, but not biologically anyway. He offered a reward for $5,000 for Dipley and by plenty of other accounts, he repeatedly repeated this offer many times, but with the requirement that the reward be paid in full for Dipley's if for Dipley's death or for, for him to be dead and not one cent for him alive so he said I'll give you five thousand dollars if you capture Dipley but you've got to bring him to me dead now the assembled doctors assessed Ketchell and decided that the wound was fatal and told Dickerson that there was nothing more that they could do and they suggested it would be better for him to be taken to the hospital now after Given the order to get Ketchell ready for the trip back to Springfield, Dickerson went back outside and told the crowd once again to find Dipley to shoot first and then yell halt. He had enough money to protect anyone who killed Dipley and he wanted Dipley's head or arm to hang on his living room wall. Now the trip back to Conway to board the train took two and a half hours because they had to travel very slowly to keep Ketchell comfortable. At Conway Station... Dickerson repeated to the crowd, gathered that there is an offer of $5,000 for Dipley dead. News of the large reward spread quickly by word of mouth and the telephone. The amount and the terms were not always reported accurately, but practically everyone in the county heard of the reward for the man who shot Ketchell. The special train made it to Springfield, 
where Catchell died a little after 7pm on October the 15th, 1910. No autopsy was held. Catchell's body was turned over to Eli Paxton's funeral parlour to prepare for burial. Mr Paxton even had a sign above his door which read, Please wipe your feet before coming in to see the dead man. Goldie was actually charged as an accomplice to murder and lodged in the Springfield prison while the witch hunt started to find the wanted killer dead, not alive, Walter Dipley. The wanted man confirmed that he went south towards the railroad tracks and the main road. Asked why he hadn't surrendered to Anderson, Dipley explained, Well, I was in a little fear. I didn't know what might happen if I give up there and then to him. I knew Marshfield was the county seat and I thought I would come over here and give up to the sheriff. Still carrying Ketchell's .45 revolver in his pocket, Dipley travelled in the general direction of Marshfield, sometimes walking along the railroad and sometimes along the county roads, and he explained, When I would come to a house, I would go through the woods. By the evening, Dipley had managed to get five miles from Marshfield, and he was hungry and tired, so he hid Ketchell's pistol in the log corn crib at the Thomas Hoggard farm. Now, Dipley made his way to the farmhouse after stashing the gun, and asked to stay for the night after making up some bogus story of why he was out wandering and why he needed a, a, a place to stay so late. Before going to his room, he actually made a telephone call, and that was overheard where, when he was asking for the whereabouts of the wife of the man who'd done the shooting. Dipley was fed and shown to his room upstairs where he slept. He actually went to sleep, apparently, and Thomas, oh God, well, he was obviously suspicious. So he told his neighbour, Zib Murphy, about the stranger, and they feared he might be the man who did the shooting. They tried to call uh, Central in Marshall Field to get a description, but were unable to get through. Zib then spent the entire night shutting him back and forth through the neighbourhood, making many phone calls and, and trying to get the description so they could decide whether the man sleeping upstairs was the man who shot Stanley Ketchell. Zip eventually returned to the Hogard farm about four o'clock in Sunday morning to find Tom, Thomas obviously still up. Uh, they sat together about six till about six a.m. in the morning uh, on Sunday, October 16. Thomas's brother Joe Hogard appeared at the farm, and he had heard about the reward on Dipley's head. They were finally given a description of what they of the wanted man, and it said that. The, the one thing that they noticed, it was an ordinary description, but he had tattoos on his arm. And Thomas described in court what happened. Joel rolled off his horse and came to the kitchen where the stair steps started up. Joe walked to the stairway and nodded for Murphy and me to follow him. And of course we followed him. And he, as in Dipley, was sitting on the bed. Mr Murphy and my brother Joe demanded to see his arm. Of course, his arm, his arm was filled with the descriptions we had got and my brother told him to consider himself under arrest. The four-man left the farm, walked a mile and a half on to Marshfield. On the way, Dipley told Joe, I'm the duck they are looking for. He went on to tell Hoggard that he had shot Ketchell in self-defence and he said, I didn't mean to shoot him. I aimed to arrest him and take him to Conway for insulting my wife. While they waited for the train, they received a phone call from Thomas's house telling them that Stanley's pistol had been found in the corn crib, so they went back and got the gun. They finally arrived in Marshfield, 
but Sheriff Cobe Fields was not in town. Joe was cautious and said, I wouldn't deliver him until I saw Shields. I said I wanted a receipt for him until Cobe came back. I turned him in there and the gun and got a receipt for it. Stanley Ketchell's body was returned to his family in Michigan two days after the shooting. Dickerson and his friend Emmett Newton accompanied the body in a private railroad car. A family funeral service was held in Belmont, Michigan on October the 20th and a public service later at the Polish Catholic Church in Grand Rapids. Dickerson reported that he had been forced to restrain Ketchell's fiancée, Jewel Bovine, from committing suicide. The murder trial in Webster County received plenty of attention, as would be expected for a famous sportsman. In the judge's final instructions, he told the jury that even if they believed that Ketchell did assault and ravish Goldie, they could not use heat of passion as a reason to reduce the charges against Dipley from first degree to second degree murder. Furthermore, the judge informed the jury that they must find Dipley guilty of first degree murder, even if they believed that Goldie was assaulted and ravaged by Ketchell, and that Dipley had shot and killed Ketchell because of that assault. The state stressed Dipley's desertion from the Navy and Goldie's unsavoury lifestyle, and she was denounced as a vile creature and devoid of all principles of pure womanhood. The prosecution said Goldie had deliberately placed Ketchell at the breakfast table with his back to the kitchen door. Uh, he had sat at the opposite end of the table for supper the evening before. So Dipley then came into the kitchen door and they argued stealthily, approached Ketchell from behind and assassinated him. So they just, they, I think they tried to use a description of the night before. They knew the layout. Of the, of the room and they knew what they were going to do in the morning and they did rob him I mean that is pretty evident they did actually take his wallet and his gun it was not self-defense the state said but murder willful and premeditated death was the appropriate penalty the defense claimed that Walter Dipley was justified in acting on appearances in shooting Stanley Ketchell Ketchell was armed with a revolver, they said, and Dipley believed that Ketchell was about to draw the weapon. He was afraid for his life and shot in self-defence. Goldie should not be considered a party to the shooting at, at all and uh, should be acquitted. The jury, seven Baptists, four Methodists and one non-churcher, deliberated for 17 hours. They found the defendants guilty of first-degree murder and recommended life in prison for both Dipley and Smith. The case was appealed to the Missouri Supreme Court. On this appeal, Goldie was actually freed after having served 17 months in a penitentiary because the court said the state failed to show that there was conspiracy to kill Ketchell and she had no part in shooting. The court affirmed the conviction of Dipley to serve a life term and Joe Hoggard, his brother Thomas Hoggard and Zib Murphy, they actually tried to collect the $5,000 reward, promised to them for the capture of Walt. And Dickerson, as we've <laughs> said many, many times, he did say he was going to give someone 5000 but he did say dead. And he said, I never offered any award for him alive or offered it for him dead. And he did say that, but he did always say about this 5000 But after they continued to get shortchanged, I think he offered them like hardly anything, fogged them off, and then they eventually had to sue him. And it was in uh, May... 1914, three years and seven months after the Hoggards and Murphy locked Walter Dipley in a county jail in Marshallfield, 
and wait for the sheriff to return. That was uh, the jury finally agreed that they in, they were entitled to receive a reward of five thousand dollars plus interest, uh, and a total reward of five thousand six hundred twelve and fifty cents. Well, they got the reward in the end. Well, yeah. End of the day, they caught him, didn't they? Oh, they got the reward no, in the he, end. He said he was going to give a fight. He should. I mean, he's, he's been a tight ass, isn't he? I think that's pretty. I think that's pretty much a good assessment <laughs> of it. Well, just moving back then to, to to Walter Dipley, and let's talk a little bit about what happened with him in the aftermath of being sent to jail for life. He was prison inmate number one two two four one, and he became a shoemaker in prison. He spent some time in solitary confinement for inciting a riot and for the possession of narcotics. He was paroled by Governor Guy Park in 1934 after serving 23 years and died from kidney disease in 1956. So he went on to live a relatively long life, to be fair to him. Goldie, well, Goldie later appeared in Springfield and she actually operated a small cafe on Boonville Hill. And she actually went on to marry gentleman Jim Hopper, described by the newspapers as a former colourful gambler. In his later years, Hopper became a barber, but made a poor living for the couple. After Hopper's death, Goldie eked out a living selling jewels from a front porch. So it's going back in the timeline a little bit, back to 1912, and Dickerson had a $5,000 monument erected over Ketchell's grave in the Polish cemetery, and it was 12 feet 6 inches tall and made of Vermont marble. By 1920, on January the 6th, Julia and Tom were again living under the same roof at the Plainfield Farm, along with son Alexander. And Julia's son, Argis, was going by the same surname, Ketchell, and his American nickname was now Arthur. Frank Plosick, a hired hand, was also there. Thomas's age was listed as 62 and Julia's as 46. I think it's worth noting that Thomas Ketchell listed his birthplace as Poland, whereas the 1900 census listed Germany and the 1910 census listed Polish, because Poland ceased to exist as a state. On February the 17th, 1928, the body of Thomas Kikal, Stanley's father, was found in a barn loft on his property near Grand Rapids. In a bizarre event, his throat had been slit and his son John was actually charged with the crime which allegedly occurred following an argument over who was entitled to the land left by Stanley Ketchell. <laughs> wow, uh, I mean, um, what a story there. Before we just jump into the last bit here, Sean, I mean, what, what do you think of that as a whole there? Poor Stanley, I mean, do you, do you think it was premeditated? Do you think they meant to kill him or do you think they just meant to rob him? It, it sounded like a little bit premeditated. I mean, both of them were were pretty desperate for money, weren't they? Like, both yep. of them had come their own different paths to get to where they were. They ended up going on a bit of a fling together. And, and let's be honest, at this time, there's many famous pairings of, of of man and woman who would go on to commit heinous, atrocious crimes. And it would go around this period of time. And it wouldn't surprise me if, if they were just sort of following suit from that, really. And they thought, well, you know, maybe we'll, we'll take our chances here and we've got an opportunity to... Uh, to take a lot of money and bugger off. Maybe it wasn't so much that it was premeditated as a murder. Maybe they did intend to steal from him and get away. But it obviously went entirely wrong. Or maybe the truth was that they genuinely felt something had happened to Goldie and Goldie was right in what she was saying yeah. and that 
this was a, a reaction off the back of what happened. It's always going to be difficult to give a, a true assessment of, of something like this because the facts are, are very few and far between. And it's been very difficult for us to, to get as much information as possible for it. But I think with, with all the sources, which we'll quote at the end, there's been many great articles and, and bits of literature out there that's allowed us to put together a story on, on Stanley Ketchell's life and his boxing career uh, and, and his untimely demise of course I mean he was supposed to have that one more fight he was supposed to go out really in, in a blaze of glory but instead he literally went out in a blaze of glory being being shot by the rifle you know he was a gunslinger he, he, not literally he just liked to carry a gun all the time he, I think he saw himself as this sort of cowboy didn't he really it's like he it was like he was living in the back end of the western times and he if i got the impression that he he probably would have fit right in if he would have been born maybe 10 10 15 years earlier he would have been more inclined to live in that particular era but in terms of his his life and his career let's just look at his accolades and in terms of his what he's earned throughout his career he actually was estimated to have earned $100,000 in the ring, which equates to about $2.4 million today. But he spent most of it through living fast with his cars and his women and his generosity as well. He wasn't wasn't a tight guy. He had the money, so he was quite generous. His career itself ended with 49 wins, 46 by way of knockout and five defeats. Although the Sam Langford fight is actually down as a no contest on some records. And then there's three draws on his record as well. And the most probably shocking statistic of all is the fact that Stanley Ketchel was only 24 years old when he was murdered 24 years old so he was talking about quitting boxing he was only 24 he was not even in the peak of his career what would have again we fantasize about what what ifs but you know he could have come back he could have been a middleweight champion for longer he could have gone on to do more but 24 it's just absolutely no age to die no, it isn't. It's not at all. I mean, it is crazy. I mean, the fact that we've what we've sat here for what near on two hours or two hours and run through his boxing career and then how it all panned out for him just from that moment as well, getting into the uh, the fight of the century as well, and that that great little towel of him wanting to knock out Jeffries to save him from Johnson, and then it just you know the escalation of it, losing his manager before that, and then he goes to the farm, tries to sort himself out. It looks like he's going to do something he's bought that plot of land he's only 24 i mean wow and he was already a two-time middleweight champion fought for a world heavyweight title who knows what he could have gone on because we know obviously johnson at the end of it was at the end of his career really johnson i mean he had a little bit more in him after don't get me wrong but there would have been times there for ketchum to have stepped in and, and probably gone on to win at the world heavyweight title at some point and then this happens and i mean he loved the women uh, some people have hinted at the fact that she was the only woman around on the on the ranch, Goldie, and he took advantage of her. Some people believe that that is the case, and that Dipley, a mad crazed lover, you know, their their relationship only started a month ago, so they were in the the moment of lust, and he, and he decided he's going to take it out on Stanley. It's just a, it's it's awful. Twenty four years old. I mean, what what a way to go. Twenty four, and we've what a life i mean what's what fantastic stories i mean a story with the murderous mexican i mean yeah. i would love that to be true and as you say rightly i think he thought himself more of a a gunslinger than an actual uh a fighter to be fair and i think he was probably born a couple of decades too late what what an amazing town it really is I, i'm real 
Well, we've got a few quotes on Stanley Ketchell from a few people that have been involved in either writing about him or been around him at the time. And the first one is from Sam Langford. He spoke very highly of Ketchell years later after he died. And he said, he was the most aggressive man I ever faced in the ring. I learned from him what an elegant thing it is to just sort of run in like a wildcat and hit the other boy so fast and so often that he just can't get out of his own way. Sam spoke of Ketchell when his death was actually made public and he also said, poor Steve, he went to his grave thinking he could really lick old Sam. <laughs> John Lardner wrote his article and he said, uh, Bill, this is this is from his article and it's, it's great because he obviously has got Bill and he's also got hype ego in here as well. So uh, Bill Minzer once said when he heard of Ketchell's death, tell him to start counting to 10 and he'll get up. <laughs> so that was the sort of character they had him. I mean, it is, that's a great little one-liner there again. Ketchell would have leapt up, he said. He would have liked even better such things as what Igor uh, used to write after Ketchell's murder. And he said, the assassin's bullet that sent Steve down into the Great Purple Valley. And the, the Great Purple Valley was to Ketchell's taste, he said, and it, and it would have made him weep. These, these obviously, these are the two guys that loved him more. So, uh, yeah, it was just that Igor hype. Igor was a very, he was a romantic novelist as well as a boxing writer. But I did like Minz's little one-liner that to start counting to ten and he'll get up. I think that and a nice little one-liner to sum up Stanley Ketchell. Well, Nat Fleischer also said about Stanley Ketchell. Stanley Ketchell was game as a bulldog and as tough as a bronco. There was no stopping him. A rushing, tearing demon of the ring who made his opponent think that all the furies of Hades had been turned loose. His egotism and eternal confidence and faith in himself. His utter fearlessness and superb courage. And that, that pretty much sums up and wraps up the, the episode as a whole. And before we put our closing thoughts on it we just want to take a moment to obviously mention the sources of where we've got this from uh, obviously there's some sources where the, the the people that have actually wrote articles or have been a part of us obtaining the sources unfortunately they're no longer with us because some of these sources are, are many years old but it's really just to acknowledge them from our side really because without them we wouldn't be able to put a a more pictured story together of what Stanley Ketchell's life and demise was all about. So the first one is the book Crossing the Colour Line, Stanley Ketchell's Challenge for Jack Johnson's Heavyweight Crown by Vernon Gravely. And then we've mentioned John Lardner quite a few times. His article, Down Great Purple Valleys, was written in May of 1954. Then you've got The Killing of Stanley Ketchell. We've also got Hitters, Dancers and Ring Magicians by Kelly Richard Nicholson. Robert K. Gilmore's article of the University Centre and is the co-founder of Ozark's Watch since 1987. And there's obviously various other articles as well that we've we've taken elements of the story from and put together in, in, in our retelling of this this particular tale. We've really enjoyed it. It's been it's been a great one. And before we give our final thoughts and closing words, we've talked about a particular book, The Killings of Stanley Ketcher, which is a novel by James Carlos Blake. Now, what we've decided to do with this is we've got a copy of the book and we're going to do a competition and the winner will get a copy of the fictional novel that is based on the myths of Stanley Ketchell. And it's it's more of a sort of fantasization of, of Stanley Ketchell as opposed to more factual. But it is very good and it's worth actually looking into. It gives you a, a sort of different what if kind of feeling to it so we will do a little bit of a competition Uh, so once you've listened to this episode once it's gone out of course we'll have a a, a something out on twitter regarding the competition so please do check that out and we'll certainly get that out to whoever wins that competition but 
it's been a pleasure to do this one. It's a, I think it's a little bit downplayed from a lot of the season because a lot of what we've done for this episode is sort of summarise Stanley's, Stanley's career and his life outside of the ring. And obviously, his untimely demise happens right at the end of the episode. So you've sort of got all this build-up, and then you get to the ultimate moment where his, his, his untimely demise happens. It's not as action-packed as I, I would say, like a Pinkland Thomas or a Mitch Green, but I do feel like Stanley Ketchell is one of them myths and them legends of the sport that... We needed to bring his story to life again and, and talk about his life and his career and his untimely demise. And this is why it featured in our second season. I've really enjoyed it. And we said at the start of the episode, you're going to feel like you're in a bit of a Western, a bit of a Red Dead Redemption style conversation going on. And I think that's exactly what's happened with Stanley Ketchell. He died too young. He's very untimely demise. But what a brilliant boxer he was. And by many of the boxing historians' accounts, He's always ranked up there as one of the greats of all time. Even over a hundred years later, people still consider him to be one of the greatest of all time. Yeah, and he was a murderous puncher. I mean, it was great to get some of those stories in there with his with his career, where he literally knocked people unconscious. I mean, obviously, eventually he got himself knocked unconscious against Jack Johnson fighting for that heavyweight title, which was you know. That's just crazy to fight Jack Johnson to give away as many pounds as he did. Very young, like almost t- ten years old. If not, I think he was about eight to ten years younger than Jack. Uh, a lot smaller, but had the bottle to go in there. Um, you know, the, obviously had the opium problems. I'm sure if if Ketchell could have been around for longer, he would have gone on to achieve much more in the sport. But who knows what he could have then gone on to achieve? He could have wrote his own book, and some of these. These tales he would have been able to explain would have been fantastic. It could have just brought even a whole new light to this, another dimension to this story. But, I mean, Stanley Ketchum, what what a great fighter. And it's just such a sad way that he died. And he's always intrigued me. I always knew Stanley Ketchum, for me, he's always up there. And he's always a, a name when you're sort of you're thinking of the top, top fighters of this time in this, in this generation. And I always knew he was murdered. I didn't really know the ins and outs of it. I knew a couple had killed him. Um, and I just thought that they just killed him and robbed him. But to, to it pretty much is that. But I didn't know the other side where... He possibly could have, yeah, who knows, the accusations there that, that he, uh, he sexually assaulted Goldie Smith. But look, it is, it's a horrible way for it to end because obviously, you know, we, we can't, he, he can't defend himself. He can't say whether it happened or not. But look, I've, I've enjoyed it. I mean, it's been great to, to read these stories. I mean, it's one thing I will say is the articles, reading back and all these articles throughout, back in so far in time, I mean, they're, the way they are able to write things is absolutely beautiful. It really is. They do set a picture. Uh, I will. I would advise anyone if you don't, if you've never read read the old old literature back in these days, do go and read it. I mean, there are obviously some terminologies that are way below the belt. You, there's certain things you can't say, but the way they're able to put things together and make a paint a picture um, of Stanley is is fantastic. And that's why you know we're giving away this book, The Killings of Stanley Ketchell by James Carlos Blake. He also is very, very well written. And, and it is, it, as you say, there's, there are myths and it's factual to a certain extent, but obviously he, he fantasizes and, and develops into something that, that had completely come from his own imagination of the times. But yeah, if anyone, whoever wins the book, then um, I'm sure you'll enjoy it and give us your, your feedback on that. And of course, on this episode, it's been, yeah. uh, let us know how good it's been. Um, hopefully you've enjoyed it. 
and going back to the 1900s. Yeah, absolutely. We've, we've done another history lesson. We've done the Jack Johnsons, the Sam Langfords, and now we've done Stanley Ketchell. Although it's for darker side of boxing, it's very much like a career profile in, in, in many parts, but we do hope you've enjoyed yeah. it. We hope you've enjoyed episode nine of season two, and if you have, do keep letting us know on social media, on Twitter at darker underscore side underscore pod, and the YouTube channel, on BTR Boxing Podcast YouTube page, on Facebook, on Instagram. You can get us on there. We've had loads of comments about a lot of the episodes recently and keep them coming. Fantastic, absolutely brilliant to see. Brilliant that people are really enjoying this second season uh, and loving the consistency, loving the quality of the content that's going out there and all the feedback. Uh, It does mean a lot to us and we really appreciate it. So do please keep it coming. We'll be back, obviously, with the after show, uh, reflecting on Stanley Ketchell's life with Luca. We'll be looking at all the elements of what happened throughout his life, and Lukey will be giving his take on this episode as well. So please do also check that out. And if you've not checked out the Patreon page, please do. Patreon.com forward slash BTR Boxing Podcast. Patrons, they'll be listening to this early. You'll be listening to this at the point where you've had it a few days earlier than everybody else. But you've also got it ad-free. So if you want to get this episode ad-free and you want to get future episodes ad-free and get early access to content like this and also get additional content that's never been released to the general public, check us out, patreon.com forward slash BTR Boxing Podcast Network. Thanks so much for listening, guys. You've been listening to this episode on the killing of Stanley Ketchell. Podcast Network. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.